Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the Reporting National in Co-op NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program, as you've just heard, is Everything Co-op. And this morning, we have Mr. Michael Partis on the line with us. He is from Bronx, New York. He heads up executive director of the Bronx Cooperative Development Development Initiative. Good morning, Michael. Morning, Vernon. I'm excited to be with you today. I'm really excited to have you back. Uh, it's a pleasure. The first time we had the opportunity to talk, I really enjoyed what you were doing up in the state where I was born, in the city I was born. I was born in, in New York City, uh, but grew up in West Virginia. Um, so I'd get back there. So it's really, I'm glad, I'm wanting to hear what's going on in this wonderful state. Uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and go to school and all of that? I was born and raised in the Bronx, New York. Everybody's familiar with the Bronx. I grew up in the Hutch Point section of the Bronx. Um, we could talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, I was educated in the Bronx. I went to Fordham University. I uh, studied African-American history. Um, that was an important kind of intellectual foundation, uh, particularly thinking about issues of inequality, thinking about issues of justice, um, and also self-determination. So I think that background, being in the Bronx, which is a hub of cultural innovation, and then the intellectual background on understanding race and economy and inequality in this country really prepared me for some of my future work. And a little tidbit is that I'm an anthropologist by training. So I'm a cultural anthropologist by training. I spent many years at the City University of New York as an educator and professor before going into this work. And so I bring all of that to the important work that BCDI, the Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative, does. Um, not only bring that to the work, but also build upon a tradition of organic intellectuals, of community leaders, of organizers and thinkers that are in the borough and thinking about how do we grow and have a more just society. So what is cultural anthropology? <laughs> I got African-American so history, but so what's cultural anthropology? <laughs> so, so culture is really important, right? When we think about culture, we're thinking about the ideas, right? What are the main ideas and what are the main habits and practices that drive our systems and our practices in society? You know, often in my culture anthropology classes, I would tell students, why do we greet people, right? So when you see someone... What is the inclination to greet them? Where does the inclination come from to do a head nod or extend your hand or say something? Where does it, where does it come from? Why does it feel that we have to uh, greet folks? And in cultural anthropology, it wouldn't be that it's natural or will you naturally greet someone. That's not the impetus for the behavior or the practice. There's the idea of acknowledgement, right? When you see another person, you acknowledge them. Whether it's, you know, a head nod, a dap, a handshake, or whatever have you. So cultural anthropology goes beyond just the behaviors that we have or beyond the outcomes that we see. 
It takes it one step beyond what's observable and begins to try to understand what are the ideas or values or principles that drive or that are an impetus for the behavior. So we greet people, a cultural cultural anthropologist will say, we greet people because we believe in acknowledgement, we believe in recognition, we we believe in seeing the other person and making it obvious that the other person is there. So anthropologists do things like that. They look at what's underpinning a society, not just the outcomes and the behaviors, but why are there certain practices and what makes them important, ideas and practice together. And I think, you know, for those of us in this work who even think about the economy, right? So it's not just that there's a racial wealth gap. It's not just that, you know, businesses operate a certain way. It's not just that policy invests in certain things, but there's a rationale. There's a reasoning. There's ideas behind it. And what are those ideas and what are those practices? How do we understand what is in order to make something better? And how do we think critically about what we want and what we say is better? Whoa. I think anthropology is a good baseline for that. So I bring that to the table. Well, I'm anxious to get into this conversation then of the reasoning behind a wealth gap, the reasoning behind how how society has consistently put down black folk, black, brown, native, indigenous folks, how, how our society, what's the culture behind that? Do you have any insights? That's a big question. Do you have any insights on what causes the behavior that, let's take the wealth gap. The, in the U.S., the average wealth for a white family before COVID-19 was $171,000. The average family, a white family, had $171,000 of assets, more than they had of liabilities, their net worth. For black families, 17000 10% of that was the average wealth of a black family. Okay. And then if you take a look at it, it's like in the black community, there is a huge number of us that's in the below $30,000 of income. So it's considered poor. I don't see how a family of four can live off of 27000 It's 27000 So you got a lot of people in the black community that's below that. And a research said that, 47% of Americans would not have $400 if they had an emergency. See, so you about half of the population have no net worth. So from a culture anthropology standpoint, what's behind that? So I think, there's, I think you brought up some important things. If we think about, we'll just stick to the United States. There's been an emphasis on individual asset building and ownership, right? That's a history from colonialism through capitalism now, that individual asset building and ownership, that's the primary idea of our economy. And then after that, it scales out into groups. So individual asset building and ownership goes from the family unit, do you own a house, right? It goes out into the business or corporate unit, how much of a market do you possess? How much product do you have? It goes then into a national sense, right? There's these ideas of individual asset building and ownership and what hubs and groups have it. And ultimately, is it monopoly, right? Is it is it a monopoly or is it a national kind of viewpoint? So this idea of individuals owning assets and individuals building assets undermines a more social, cooperative, commonwealth even approach to economy 
right? That is the crux of kind of where we're at. I think we're seeing a lot of that unravel or be challenged before COVID-19, but particularly during this pandemic. The idea of individual asset building, the idea of individual ownership has only created, you know, you see these narratives, a rat race, dramatic inequality, because it also creates a value system. And it begins to say, if individuals, if the goal of your economic activity is to build assets and to own, the people who do that successfully are the winners. The people who are unsuccessful in doing that are the losers. That very simplistic framing of economy, of socioeconomics, is deeply problematic in the United States. It leads to monopoly. It leads to structural racism. It leads to exclusion. It leads to disinvestment. It leads to abandonment. And I just want to say in the Bronx, New York, we've seen those false ideas of socioeconomic success lead to that, right? Lead to individualized where those people don't want to build assets. Those people can't own. Those people, et cetera, et cetera, deficiency models. So the United States, right, has begun to see its care infrastructure. It's begun to see its health infrastructure. And it's begun to see its physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, tunnels. From the care work, how do we take care of people and develop them? Through the health work, how do we keep people safe? Through now the physical infrastructure, how do we travel? How do we have systems where we share energy, water? Each of those systems I just named have unraveled from Flint, Michigan, to Legionnaires in the Bronx, to COVID-19 and airborne disease, through crumbling roads. You see I-95 froze over (laughs) Um, in in an unfortunate way earlier this week um, due to a storm. We've seen each of those systems, right, cause tremendous harm and hardship. People stuck on the road or people becoming ill and sick due to water or inability to have clean indoor air. Our individual notions of economic success, our individual notions of social worth deeply embedded in racism has caused these kind of outcomes. And now the United States, as several, every decade, parable of the um, sower, every decade we see that there's these crises and how do we move past these crises. And, you know, for myself and BCDI, and I think your listeners as well, we want a solution to this crisis that says that there's shared ownership, that there's more economic democracy as we believe in BCDI, that there's a cooperative, larger social scale way of justice and equity, a reconstruction, I would even say, right? That is the solution, thinking about these things in cooperative and shared ways moving and moving away from the individual asset building and ownership model. So this individual asset and ownership model leads to competition. It leads to graph. It leads to all of the kinds of things, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's kind of okay to want to have, but when you want to have, so you take away from a group of people and that group of people, a lot has been black, brown, native folks that, been taken from the, the indigenous people they just came and took the land okay moved them out of the way put them in uh, lots and killed a lot and lot of of them and the same thing with bringing us from africa it's like how do we build our wealth our individual wealth individual plantation owner and it doesn't make any difference about anybody else but you know the quiet secret is growing up in west virginia they do the same thing to them to each other the white folks do it to white folks when you get poor white people, 
they get the same result. And for, hopefully, through the poor people's campaign and what you're doing in Bronx, the poor white people will wake up and say, we got to band together. we got to band together and build and build and build. So that's social anthropology. I think I would have liked to have studied that. And maybe I still will get a class or two up in here. Okay. There's still time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you, you, you grew up in, born in Bronx, grew up in Bronx, went to Forum University, studied African-American history and cultural anthropology. Okay, and then you taught a while? Yeah, I taught in the City University of New York. I taught at Borough, Borough of Manhattan Community College, BMCC. I taught there for almost seven years. I think the two-year colleges Vernon, are, are very important. You know, often the City University, City University of New York describes itself as a engine of economic mobility. And when you think about the working class folks and their desires, their striving, not just to individually do better or for their families, but to do better for their communities and their neighborhoods. I felt that spirit um, when I was an educator, and I think that's an important kind of component for us to remember as folks that are building a better, more solid economy. We're going to go to our, our first break, and then we're going to come back and talk to Michael Parter some more about what they're doing in Bronx Corporate Development Initiative to overcome this individual ownership and, and growth and do it collectively. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Mr. Michael Partis on the line with us this morning. He's the executive director of the Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative, and we were just talking about um, his being born in the Bronx, growing up in the Bronx, going to Fordham University, studying African-American history and cultural anthropology, and our culture in the U.S., it's individual ownership and individual wealth building. And a lot of times those individuals that have wealth will hurt those that don't, no matter their race or gender or political affiliations or religion or anything else. And so he talked a couple of times. He mentioned cooperative is a way to overcome in this individual piece. So, Michael, what are the benefits of cooperative? Why would you say cooperative is a way out of this, the problem that we have with the masses of Americans and I would say masses of people around the world? So I think one example is that in our current economic system, we constantly deal with crisis. So even if we take just the, the 21st century, right, we've had a crisis in the financial sector. Right. There was bubbles and housing bubble, mortgage loan bubbles. We've had a crisis of racial justice. Right. We've had police killings. We've had police brutality. We've had crisis of now health. Um, we mentioned this. But we had crisis of infrastructure. Right. In Flint, Michigan and, and clean water and, and, and things like this. Now we have a crisis of health, our inability to keep people safe. Each of these crises, and, and there's many more I could have named, but just to stick to these words of the 20th century, we often struggle in this current economic system, the way finance capital works now. The way finance capitalism works now, we often struggle to create permanent, stable, sustainable affordability, right? So when it comes to housing, for example, a cooperative model would have an enduring 
housing structure because we know housing is a social need, right? It's the very first step. So we would have cooperatives and land trust and et cetera. We would have permanent kind of housing. It doesn't become something subject to the market. But we don't have that. I mean, in New York, we're on the precipice of perhaps a massive eviction crisis for our renters, at least. You know, January 15th, our uh, moratorium is looking like it's going to end. There should be how do we have a society organized in that way where in the midst of a health crisis, a pandemic that's taken thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives, people could be out in the street. Safety would be an issue. So from a cooperative perspective, right, cooperatives provide a more democratic way of deciding what we need. It has a more stable way of an enduring investment and commitment to what we need. And from a values perspective, Right, a cooperative understands that there are some things that are fundamental rights that can't be subject to profit loss um, or PNL or these other financial measures. Cooperatives and cooperative ways of living, back to the anthropology point, we've seen it throughout our society. You know, in the Bronx, one of the most um, inspiring examples in the Bronx, New York, of this has often been in care work, right? Whether it's home health aides or whether it's been in child care. People who take cooperative approaches to caring for the young, people who take cooperative approaches for caring for those aging or under health challenges. So there's a need for this. The, the argument has often been that cooperative and, you know, your listeners and you know this very well. The argument is often that cooperatives can't compete in a market economy, right? They can't do the value or they can't do the scale or they can't garner the returns on investment. And for us at BCDI, part of rewiring that is that what is the benefit of development and economic decisions? Is it for profit? Is it for mass production? And what has an obsession with growth and an obsession with mass production done to the environment? Right? Um, you know, in the South Bronx, we have seen dramatically poor health outcomes due to the need to have highways and bridges and et cetera that bring trucking and bring, you know, that's a narrative that everyone knows. But I just want to say that those outcomes, the outcomes of, you know, again, back to the individual ownership, monopolies, you know, mass production, profit, they've all undermined what should be the outcomes, which is that people have the power to make decisions and shape the development of their communities, that justice and equity are important in order to have sustainability, that people who are the closest to the outcomes are the ones who should govern those systems and institutions. And there are examples of that, you know, all throughout. The, that's why I love this show. This show has tremendous examples every week of people doing that. Look, let me, let me, I think it's important. Yeah. Let me go back to housing because that's the one I know most about in this cooperative. This is called Everything Co-op. So we talk about all of the different cooperative uh, structures and segments and businesses. But housing, limited equity housing co-ops is the affordable piece of, of housing. And there was a study done that showed that HUD financed limited equity housing co-ops compared to HUD funded apartments, affordable apartments, that the limited equity cooperatives outperform the apartments in every measure you could think of. The, the quality of life how long the housing existed and how well it was kept. Lower crime rates. Any variable you want to look at. And so when you start talking about profit, over the long term, 
the housing created profit, but it created profit for the individuals that lived in that cooperative, not profit for the shareholder that the apartments did. And the shareholder, in wanting to increase their return on investment, would do things like not replace the roof. And they would get deterioration or mold and the health outcomes that you were talking about would happen. And then the people had no say of what was going on, and so they didn't feel like community. So that whole sense of being wasn't there. And the other thing that a a five-foot German lady told me that lived in a housing co-op, she said, my greatest return was I was able to raise my three children in a safe environment. And they were all, one was a doctor, one was a lawyer, and I don't remember what the third one were was. So there's a lot of value in uh, limited equity housing co-ops, but if you go look, HUD doesn't put any money into that anymore. Okay? And the question becomes why? You have a sense of why HUD puts their money in apartment buildings when they don't perform as well as a co-op? I think you bring up a very important point around housing, and I think the housing point leads us to think a little bit more about land use. Yeah. Because ultimately, the, the idea of land use, when we come into the capitalist framework, everything's around excessive production, right? Everything's around profit. In the Bronx, we have 80% of our Bronxites do not own their home, right? So 80% of Bronxites do not own their home, their renters. And bringing it to your point, if we think about this, there is a movement in the opposite direction. Today, in 2022, we have 80% of Bronxites who do not, do not own their homes. But in the 1960s, for example, coalitions, the mo- one of the most famous cooperative housing examples is Co-op City in the northeast part of the Bronx. That was a coalition of immigrants, unions, and public officials who decided to create a cooperative housing development in the northeast section of the Bronx. In the 1970s. How many units were in that, in that co-op? I don't have it offhand. I don't have it offhand. So I've, I've heard nine thousand. I've heard ninety thousand, and I don't. That's a huge grab. So, how many <laughs> units are in that? It's big. We'll, it's we'll, huge. I know. We'll that. definitely get it. We'll get it to the folks after the break for sure. We'll get it to those. Okay. I, so, but I just wanted to say, in the sixties, we had Co-op City. In the seventies, we've had a number of nonprofits that create in the Bronx that created housing cooperatives, and. All of it requires some partnership and pressure on government, as you said, Vernon. And it was very important to think about it on the finance part, first and foremost. On the finance piece, so much of the loans and grants and other types of financing became extractive, right? And it makes it difficult for community groups to really even enter the process. So how can HUD be a better partner in that? How can government be a better partner in that is one key sort of thing. I think the other part too to mention is how does this relate to public housing? Right? In 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 a, in a not exactly the same but in the higher level point here. You know, in New York, we've been facing, you know, NYCHA, which is our public housing system. We faced a lot of efforts to have NYCHA privatized. And so from local groups having difficulty, right, having partners in government where they can access the financing so that way we can have local ownership, cooperative management, more limited equity or housing co-ops. So also even our public housing, right, being on the precipice of privatization, the partnership with government would be key. And, you know, what I want to offer, Vernon, really quick is 
this lends itself for a reparations framework, right? I mean, if 80% of Bronxites, predominantly Bronxites of color, do not own their property, if this also has led to a disinvestment, and now it's incredibly difficult for those local groups, the same ones that saved housing, the Bronx is burning kind of narrative of the 1970s, right, who saved the housing stock, I think there's a reparations framework to continue on. I think low-income black, brown immigrant communities, um, I think long-term residents who've been facing displacement, and I think, you know, just representing safe and affordable housing, living wage jobs. There needs to be a cross-sector approach to a reparations framework that stabilizes housing. And I think we see that in a lot of cooperative models as well. We do see it, and we'll be right back, everybody, after our second break. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Everybody, this is Vernon Oaks. Our guest this morning is Michael Partis from the Bronx. The Bronx, he had told us that 80% of the people in the Bronx, they don't own their homes, they rent. So only 20% of the people in the Bronx own their homes. And just looking up, he said that there are 15,000 people that live in Co-op City that, that was developed in the 60s. In the 70s, nonprofits uh, created co-ops. But the median family income is approximately $22,000 for a family of four in the Bronx, and it's 27000 is what the U.S. considers poor. So the median family income, that's half of those 80% of people are considered poor, and I call it poor. I don't know how any family of a family of four can live anywhere in New York for $22,000. And so there's a lot of people that are suffering suffering financially in the Bronx, and all of that's shown up really, really clear with COVID. And this is what Michael Partis has been talking to us about, at least from an anthropological standpoint. And African-American history is what he studied. So you had mentioned uh, housing and health care. And, and with COVID, the health care problems, the systems, uh, has shown up too, and a lot of that has been caused by profit motive, uh, so that you would have hospitals that go under. And we've had Roger Green on, who's talked about that in the Bronx, uh, how how hospitals have gone under, and they want to get and make them into co-ops so that people can have the health care that they need. But there's all kinds of issues. So, what are some of the things that you guys are doing in the um, Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative. Give me a case study or two of, of what, what kinds of co-ops are you developing there? I think one important thing is that when we often talk about the Bronx, we, we have those statistics of poverty or displacement. We often then don't think of Bronx sites as assets. And one of the important things in solidarity economy, economic democracy is that we see our folks as assets, that we see that Deepak leadership, that racial justice, right, that these are important principles and that our people are assets, that in fact that the Bronx as a, as a borough, as a region, right, we have the talent, we have the human capital, and we, we have the solidarity, we have the social capital to transform poverty and reverse redlining 
So one example is we are part of a coalition that's creating a 30-year people's economic development plan. And so this has been really important from the social principles of, of cooperation that we've had uh, people's assemblies where we've mapped the assets, the challenges, and the threats and opportunities in our borough. So this people's economic development plan that we are in coalition with 13 other groups and creating sets a long-term vision for the economic democracy that we often talk about. So that's just one example of, a, of several groups coming together, building over time towards a long-term vision for a more cooperative economy and a more cooperative society that's more just and more equitable. We've also worked with some small businesses that are worker cooperatives that I think are important to lift up. One is called BioClassic. BioClassic is an all-Latina worker cooperative in the Bronx. They focus on cleaning and and sanitation. And BioClassic, there's a case study that I would invite folks to go on to YouTube and they can see this case study. One of the things with BioClassic is that we've supported with marketing, with helping them with contracts in particular. And so one of the nonprofit housing organizations that we mentioned, so Wedco, um, we help bring BioClassic and Wedco together to do commercial and retail um, cleaning of their units and, and their spaces. So this was a local nonprofit, right, actually procuring and vending with a worker cooperative and a worker cooperative that's all Latina. I think that's one important example. Uh, a few others. Wait a minute, wait a minute before, you, before you move on, I just want to let everybody know a worker cooperative is a business that's owned and controlled by the employees. If the employees own the business, they control the business. Um, they say uh, if they make money, they say what happens to that money. Um, then they, they have voice and they create leaders. Uh, in these worker co-ops, and so BioClassic, how many members are in that uh, in that group in that business? Just give me an approximate number. About fifteen. Okay, so you have fifteen individuals in this business that learn how to run the business, that learn how to manage the business. They all have a say so in the business. They create their board of directors. And part of that fifteen would be on the board. Their bylaws may say you can have outside board members. And so they they get voice, which I think it to me, um, Michael, is one of the big things about a co-op is that somebody that may not have a high school degree or a high school degree only gets voice and they get the knowledge they need um, to run a business and run their family and run their community. That's what makes this all great. Okay. Absolutely. You know, I think another example that's inspiring, too, is a business that we've helped come back to the Bronx. So there's a business called KD Knit, and its founder and and president, uh, David Lee, is a fashion company, and they use sustainable approaches to production and manufacturing. And David, David has been at Fashion Week, and David has had a long career in the fashion industry. I actually hope that, you know, he's someone that could be on the show in the future. David has been looking to bring his business back to the Bronx for several years. And so BCDI, uh, Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative, our organization, began to work to David to say, hey, who are the stakeholders that we need to engage in order to bring this business back? And so some of it started with local local folks, right, who are the local folks in workforce or the local folks in policy 
that need to understand why bringing fashion manufacturing back to the Bronx could be important. Why a business that focuses on environmentally friendly and sustainable manufacturing processes like one example is they turn okra into fabric, right? So, you know, David has these. Yes, I know. Okra. Yes, okra into fabric. This is one of the things that David does, uh, his company does. But having people understand that vision, having people understand why this type of business would be important, and that through the engagement with BCDI, so learning, talking to our partners, learning more about economic democracy, that David became interested in his business coming back and being a worker cooperative. So now not only are we bringing an important kind of sector, the Bronx is a hub of fashion, right, for sure. You know, from the interest of young people to the history of style, not only is it about bringing a business back, quote unquote, not only is it about a business that represents kind of green economy, right, and then the things that are important in sustainability, but also coming back as a worker cooperative, so we're excited that David this year will be coming back to the South Bronx. So do they? Um, but these do, are the yeah. Go ahead, I'm Bernie. sorry. Do they? Is, is it a textile company? Do they make the fabrics that? So it, it's individuals that will be at sewing machines making fabrics that he helps to design, and exactly. that's the fashion part of it. Exactly, and, and we think about how pregnant with opportunity that kind of uh, textile, right? That kind of textile and that kind of manufacturing making could be everything from the entry that happens at the skill level to the worker ownership piece to what this could mean for the environment, right? We know that there's in traditional fashion production manufacturing, there's a lot of waste, right? There's a lot of energy consumption, a lot of water consumption. There's these crazy statistics on often what it takes to produce um, clothing, we're creating an easier entry point into an economy. We're creating one that isn't just about wage, but we're actually about building wealth and specifically focusing on Bronxites, BPOC folks, so that way they can own, right, and et cetera. And there's a green economy component here whoa, that whoa, whoa, some whoa. of the waste and zero sum that we're ever changing david is incredible um i invite you all you know i'm what? sure after this in the show notes we could uh drop the link and okay. people can learn more about david's business i'd appreciate that uh, but this goes uh, 1844 in rochdale england is where the uh, principles the values uh, first time written down at least um the the values and principles of cooperation they were textile workers and normally the textile workers are the ones at the lower end of the, of the totem pole. They're sweatshops making in, at a sewing machine. So now you say, okay, these textile workers can have a say. They can have ownership. They can get create wealth. If the business is profitable, they get to share in that profit. So it's about people first, planet second, and that's what you've been talking a lot about, environment and both bioclassic um, and the KD knit. It's about the environment. Now, I'm, what I'm interested in, that means I can buy a suit made out of okra and I can eat it too? I mean, it's just, I, can, I, can, I can eat my clothes after I wear If your New Year's resolution, if one of them was <laughs> to stay fit, stay healthy, yeah, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> you could burn calories and stay healthy at the same time. Vernon, if it's possible, I wanted to lift up one important partner in some of this work. Sure. In New York City, uh, we're coming on the heels of an initiative called Owner to Owners. And so Owner to Owners was an initiative of New York City Small Business Services and the previous mayor, the mayor's office. Owner to Owners supported 
conversions, conversions into employee ownership. And it provided the exit option, the growth model, the access to capital, all the moving parts. And an important partner in that um, helping to coordinate this own its owner initiative was DAWI, Democracy at Work Institute. And so I lift this up because owner to owners represents how government and local government can step into the support, right, of creating more worker cooperatives and supporting economic democracy and sustaining, right, and stabilizing the economy. And I think it also shows how important um, connectors like DAWI um, and the important role they play bringing national and even international knowledge on these connections on, on work worker co-ops is important. And how that gets to a group like BCDI, right? So for a group like BCDI, who are in local communities, building the ideas, as we started off today's show talking about the ideas of cooperativism, the ideas of a democratic workplace, and also the business development, right, which help you, how do you get contracts? How do you pitch? How do you, you know, what is the partnerships you need to find office space, etc.? How when we bring these moving parts together, you know, we talked about, you know, HUD and, and government and other examples of disinvestment and retreat. But owner to owners, you know, is an example in the work that us, Dawi, um, the city did to kind of maintain and particularly in COVID. Right. When so many businesses were struggling, possibly shuttering to have an initiative that were able to bring these moving pieces together to keep businesses open and help them grow and even convert into employee ownership. That was important. And, you know, as some of the outcomes from owner to owner become um, more public and some of the reporting and evaluation come out, it's something that I would encourage folks to look at. But that model of city government stepping in and creating the container, the container, as we would say, to allow and, and this type of economic development to happen, drawing on expertise from folks in the field and then working closely with business and local community. You know, some of that is how David and David Lee and BioClastic and some of the other cooperatives that we work with, this is how what's allowed them to continue to accelerate. So I just wanted to lift that up, that there are some models for us to look at. DAWI is D-A-W-I? Yes. And I think they can be reached at D-A-W-I.com, I think, yes. or is it dot .coop? So I tell you, we're going to get ready for our, our third and final break. And Michael Partis, you've just given us a lot of information uh, about the history from an anthropological standpoint, uh, and I, what I, and what's happening now in the Bronx. Um, I didn't know that a twenty-two thousand dollar medium family income was what would happen in New York City. That that is sad. Uh, where eighty percent of the people are, are renting. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about future. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing now? Then what would lead after the pandemic? Because you talked about pandemics. I, I called the George Floyd incident bringing out the pandemic of racism in America, COVID-19, health, and all of the issues there. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. The National Cooperative Bank sponsors this program. Their mission is to help support co-ops and their members, especially in low-income communities like the Bronx, by providing innovative financial services, and they do a wonderful job at that, and they've been our supporter, our cheerleader for the last eight years, um, Michael. So I wanted to come back and talk about 
what what does this future look like? And, and you know, I I got a little sad during the break just thinking that those one percenters have really gotten the world the way they want it to be with Citizen United where they can buy politicians and then the politicians can create the policies like at HUD or at Small Business Administration or NIH or anywhere else that create policies that help them to make more money, but it also depresses everybody else and keeps everybody else at and there's some 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 information about the the economics of poverty that if you keep people poor then uh, when somebody falls dead at 55 as opposed to 85, then there's five people still waiting to get that job. And then they cannot demand 15, 20 bucks an hour. But what we're talking about is, no, don't, don't try to demand 15 bucks an hour. Go ahead and start your own company and make 25, 50, 30 bucks an hour, 100 bucks an hour. Get out there and you make your money. And you, you had talked about the um, healthcare system and everything else. So, Coming from African-American history and anthropology, what do you see the future and how do we come out of this COVID in a way that supports black, brown, native people? I definitely think one of the first things is to localize the supply chain. Now, in localizing the supply chain, it's not jargon. Literally what we mean is that there are, in New York, we call them MWBE, Minority and Women-Owned Business and Enterprises. Black-owned, worker cooperative enterprises and businesses, how do we get major you know, anchor institutions and major purchasers to do more business with our black-owned or BPOC, majority BPOC um, worker cooperatives? That connection is fundamentally key. And that becomes everything from who we vent with, even if we think about the Build Back Better for example, the infrastructure money that's going to come out, do we have the, the, the HVAC businesses, right? The HVAC businesses, the energy and grid businesses, the green economy businesses that we know are important. How do we have those businesses be the primary vendors for some of these opportunities that are coming up? So that's the first thing. So that could be universities and hospitals when you talk about institutions. That could be government entities that would contract with these black-owned workers when you say institutions. Exactly. exactly. So we localize the supply chain. And so for us at BCDI, innovation is important. There's been a history of innovation districts and innovation regions, but the local knowledge, the knowledge economy that exists to have the products that are going to be important. You know, COVID-19 has decimated our communities. COVID-19 is an airborne virus, airborne disease. So what is the air filtration that we're going to need? What is the innovation in masks that we're going to need? There's a knowledge economy piece that then needs to be produced locally that then needs to be procured locally, right? So if you bring all of it together, the innovation, how do we support the skill development, the business development of the worker cooperatives that are going to address the green economy pieces that we know and the health concerns that we have and then how are we going to partner with these anchor institutions these major institutions to then purchase locally right knowing that this all comes together the new york times had an article i think earlier this week 
saying that, oh, local local manufacturing needs to come back and supply chains have been in crisis. But those of us that have been doing this work and, you know, the Democracy Collaborative and many others, right, for a long time have been highlighting this. So that's one piece, Vernon. I think there's a second piece if I have time. So the one piece is localizing the supply chain and bringing that innovation, knowledge economy, and making sure that BPOC, worker cooperatives, black-owned businesses, received um, access to opportunity and are beneficiary. I think the second thing, I'll be remiss, this is January 6th, we're one year anniversary of the insurrection on the Capitol. And I think from a cooperative perspective, what our principles in the cooperative movement are very vital for the society right now. And, you know, for us at BCDI, we're working on, I mentioned this earlier, we're working in coalition with other faith-based CBOs, community-based organizations, a number of groups on a long-term people's economic development plan for our region. But that plan is premised on racial justice. That, that plan is premised on reconstruction, equity, right? And on the one-year anniversary of a set of people who argued against those things, right? Mm-hmm. The insurrection was against kind of these ideas of racial justice, of of equity and more around individualism and supremacy. I think it's just very important that this work of working in coalition, working with multi-stakeholders and holding values, Vernon, right? Holding values of solidarity, of equity, equality is vital. And so I think the work that cooperatives do, we talk about work, um, democratic workplaces, but the idea that we share leadership that we make decisions in a democratic sort of way and that those ideas of cooperation are important for long-term economic development planning. They represent black leadership and how black leadership has been done over millennia. Society, this country today, needs to hold true to that and remember that. And so the Bronx is a prototype or a micro example of it of what we're doing in the Bronx-wide coalition But I just want to hold that for all the groups across the country who are committed to racial justice, racial equity, that are doing people's movements and people's plans, that that is what we need to hold up uh, from a cooperative perspective and from an economic transformation perspective. I think that's the second thing I hope we focus on moving forward. And I hope you know about downtown Crenshaw in L.A., the group of folks down there buying a 40-acre, 43-acre mall and all of that stuff that they're doing. But the Federation of Southern Co-ops in the South, people in Chicago, Philadelphia, lots of folks are doing this to the point where it would be nice to have us come together virtually or in person. All of the black folk, brown folks, native folks that are doing this, Navajo nations out in, in uh, had a lady on November's Native American Heritage Month, they see co-ops as the answer for bringing people out because they, they have no water. You talk about Flint having lead in the water. They have no water. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. to go out with trucks and bring it in. So it's like, how how do we come together? So I would love to see us get something together where we can come together and share all of these ideas that people are percolating throughout the U.S. and the world. So how do you see popular culture mapping out the future? I'm excited. You know, Queen Sugar gave us a really good opportunity. If any of you watch Queen Sugar, it's a show on OWN. Ava DuVernay is the executive director of it. In this season finale, Ralph Angel, one of the lead characters, talked about the family business becoming a worker cooperative. Like, that's important. And we mentioned, I heard you mention briefly just now, Vernon, the Southern 
cooperative federation the idea of popular culture a show like a show on own right oprah, oprah, oprah winfrey's the oprah. executive director yeah. On Oprah's network, right, the idea that a show is talking about a black family and a group of farmers in the South moving towards a cooperative business framework, small example, but an important one around black self-determination, around a new way of doing the economy that's based on history, right? You know, the South has had, you know, of course, tons of research on this. The South has had a history of, of, of farmers and, and other folks banding together in cooperatives. But popular culture from this piece, our creatives – Right, who can set the vision for what cooperation looks like and help popularize the understanding to journalists, right? I think journalists have a place in popular culture. That's key. And I, I think lastly, I think there's a lot of what I was calling uh, citizen journalism. Instagram lives, Zooms, Facebook lives, while big tech is a problem for sure. Without a doubt, big tech is a problem, but just continuing to practice journalism, you know, and partnering with folks like you to lift up the downtown Crenshaw's and the other examples is key. But I would love to see our creatives. We know the playwrights, the authors, the filmmakers, the podcast producers, our creatives, right, is very important that we partner with them. So the ideas, you know, I talked about anthropology as an anthropologist, the ideas of economic democracy, solidarity economy, community wealth building, worker cooperatives. The idea is that democracy and equity need to be seen in character, and it needs to be seen in narrative. And we have an incredible set of creatives that can do that work. And I think that's the next frontier, not only documenting it in how we do on shows like this, but in our creative space. I can't wait for the worker cooperative graphic novel. So let's put that out there, too. Okay, you might write it. Okay, or we we get the lady that wrote Queen Sugar to write it, Natalie Bazile. But anyway, we get more and more people writing about it, more and more people knowing about it. This is an answer for how we come together and build wealth together, build wealth solidly together. Thank you, Michael, for being on the show today. This is the end of it. We'll come back next Thursday with another show for you guys and. Please live this week cooperatively. Your news talk station. 